Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Although the stakes were much higher in 1860, the extremely divisive election that year may offer some insight into our current situation. The North and the South were being pulled apart because of slavery, and the Republicans needed a candidate who could carry the North and win a majority of the Electoral College. They needed to win swing states, New Jersey, Illinois, Indiana, and Pennsylvania, and they chose Abraham Lincoln as the man to do it. Lincoln got 40% of the popular vote and 180 Electoral College votes, which was enough to win. But by the time of his inauguration in March, seven Southern states had seceded. Award-winning historian David S. Reynolds, the author of, uh, and, uh, of uh, 16 books on, on 19th century America and a distinguished professor at the Graduate Center at CUNY, has written Abe, Abraham Lincoln in His Times, a 932-page character study of our 16th president. It's published by Penguin Press, and I'm very pleased that it brings Professor Reynolds to our show now. Welcome. Nice to be here. Now, you've called him Abe in your title, but you say he didn't especially like that nickname. What did he prefer to be called? Well, he liked to be called just Lincoln, uh, particularly by people that were close to him. He didn't even like Mr. President. He didn't like Abraham. He didn't like Abe. Uh, he just liked Lincoln, although his wife called him Mr. Lincoln. And <laughs> and uh, But the masses, the reason I call my book um, Abe is that he knew he depended on the Abe image um, to win the election of 1860, uh, and he won the second term as well. But he was beloved by the millions. Um, as old Abe, Uncle Abe, uh, Abe the Illinois uh, rail splitter, uh, Honest Abe. So uh, there were these various nicknames that revolved around uh, Abe. And uh, so it's kind of his intersection with the, ma the masses that I'm most interested in in, uh, in this particular book. Hadn't he earned the nickname Honest Abe at a very young age? How did that come? Yeah, out? he he actually earned it when he was in his twenties. Uh, um, no one knows when it was first used. I I think it was when he, he was in his mid to late twenties, and he was even um, called old Abe when he was <laughs> quite young. When he was in his twenties, he, he you know, and people knew that he he didn't even look old when he died at age uh, fifty six. Uh, he still had dark hair and so forth, and, and uh, uh, but still, he uh, uh, from a quite young age, he was just known as Old Abe, and this was a kind of a an avuncular term. He had sort of a this kind of uh, paternal and avuncular, and also very approachable, like uh, oh, there's Old Abe, you know, uh, in a very approachable kind of familiar uh, atmosphere around him. <laughs> Haven't something like 16,000 books been written about Abraham Lincoln since he was assassinated 155 years ago, uh, including books by Carl Sandburg, Doris Kearns, Goodwin, and others? Why did you feel that it was important to add another book to that list? Well, you know, you can read all 16,000, and I might not have... Have you? All... <laughs> I've... I've... I certainly know about all sixteen thousand, uh, and I've I certainly read all the. I've read the Sandburg and the uh, Goodwin, the you know David Donald and uh, Ronald White and uh, Michael Burlingame, on and on and on. 
So I and Harold Holzer and so forth, and a lot of them are really marvelous, marvelous, wonderful books. Uh, Lincoln has been very, very lucky uh, in terms of the people who have written books about him. However, one can can read many, many books and not um, encounter names like uh, uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe or Walt Whitman. Mm. Uh, these were the uh, or Edgar Allan Edgar Allan Poe. Or these Euc- were the or writers of his era and so forth. And and you uh, mentioned Euclid as well. And and Euclid, he, um, you know, some people do mention that that he uh, studied uh, Euclid on his own. But um, yeah, but uh, uh, Euclid and many and Robert Burns and and even Shakespeare is usually not mentioned. He memorized Shakespeare by the page, not to impress. People um, at parties or whatever, but just because um, there were certain passages in poetry and in Shakespeare that really uh, meant something to him emotionally, and they kind of expressed his his feelings. So he'd read a passage, you know, a few times, and it would be inscribed on his hard disk, <laughs> his brain. It would be inscribed there in, in the middle of the Civil War or something. At a particular moment, he would come out with a passage uh, of Shakespeare or something. So, yeah, I'm I'm very interested in his interaction with with culture and culture on all all levels. He was familiar with high culture, with opera, and with Shakespeare and and low low culture, the the frontier humors, which was uh, quite grotesque and sometimes uh, sort of. Dirty, dirty jokes and so forth. So he was, in, and everything kind of in between. He was, even though he had less than one year of schooling, uh, primary schools basically, and, and sort of junior high school, but um, less than one year, he was. He, he just uh, would read a lot, and more than that, even he would observe, observe the world around him, and he was always very curious uh, about so many different things. So that's why you've called this a cultural biography. Yeah. Now, his parents were Southern Cavalier on his mother's side and New England Puritan on his father's. I imagine that would have been uh, made it a bit difficult to merge those two very disparate influences. Yes, and he tried to actually sub submerge them in a sense because a lot of people at that time they were aware of the slavery divide, yes, but they were also, uh, they built up this uh, real myth of the Northern Puritan versus the Southern Cavalier. And a lot of people uh, were saying this was the real basis, um, almost like the culture wars today or something like that. This is uh, the real basis of the animosity between the two sections. And... So Lincoln was very aware of his Cavalier background and his Puritan background, but he tried to uh, derive what he thought were the best uh, elements of each, the best elements from the Cavalier being a sense of honor, personal honor, and the the best from the Puritan being a sense of morality and sort of social justice, that kind of thing. And, um, but without really discussing them in public, he he didn't use those words Puritan or Cavalier because he didn't want to have any kind of conflicting um, elements. Just as he didn't really mention the word Confederacy for Confederate States of America, he would sometimes say the, the so-called 
Confederacy, but he he never even wanted to uh, admit that there was a separate na- nation called the Confederacy. So it was all about union and uh, not division, and therefore he um, instead he allowed his biographers uh, in that era to call him a, a Quaker of Quaker an- ancestry. Turns out there were no Quakers, or maybe one in his entire ancestral background, um, a woman, uh, Rebecca Flowers. But other than that, they were all either Congregationalists or they were Baptists or something else. But uh, he kind of encouraged that because Quakers were actually uh, seen as a buffer between the North and the South, as a mediating influence. Even though they they opposed slavery, Southerners kind of accepted them because... um, they were also pacifists. They would never. They they didn't want to go to war, or even get that angry over slavery, uh, and that militant. And the Northerners uh, liked them because they were anti-slavery. Uh, so uh, they were kind of accepted, and they they settled in the middle states, Pennsylvania, and so forth, uh, kind of between the um, the north and the south. And and so Lincoln kind of com- comfortably reposed in that image. Uh, and his contemporary biographers sort of em- em- emphasize this uh, Quaker influence. <laughs> but actually, uh, there were some militant Quakers uh, in upstate New York and Dutchess County. There was a, a Quaker enclave that was the first in the colonies to declare um, slavery, uh, to abolish slavery. And also, they boycotted any products that uh, might have been made with slave labor. Uh, right. So there's so there's an area called Quaker Hill in Dutchess County. But anyway, uh, yeah. was all of this complicated by the fact that his wife Mary Todd came from a slaveholding family in Kentucky, and didn't several of her half brothers even serve in in the Confederate Army? Yeah. Um, her father, her mother died uh, after she had several siblings. Mary had several siblings, and then her father remarried a Southern woman. And, yeah, they did hold people in slavery. They had enslaved people in their household. Um, They were living in Kentucky, Lexington, Kentucky. Mm -hmm. And uh, Mary Lincoln, Mary uh, Todd grew grew up in this kind of slaveholding household. Uh, However, she, when she moved north to Illinois, she became, in her words, even a stronger abolitionist than her future husband, uh, Abe Lincoln. That's not quite true, but still, she, she really did develop anti-slavery feelings. And so did several of her siblings. However, her step-siblings, uh, um, almost all of them, uh, sympathized with the Confederacy. And she lost a few brothers, step-brothers, who died uh, while fighting for the Confederacy, and even though she had been sort of close close to them at one point, she just couldn't cry about it because she said, you know, if they had lived, they were going to try to defeat the Northern cause, and they were going to try to perpetuate slavery, and if they got near my husband, they were going to kill him. So, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, so she, she really remained loyal to the Northern cause. As a leader during a polarized time, uh, didn't Lincoln choose to be a centrist, although could it be said that he kind of leaned to the left? 
Yeah, and to lean left uh, in that era meant to be very deeply opposed to slavery, the institution of slavery, and also to envisage uh, citizenship rights um, for African Americans once they were liberated or emancipated. And fundamentally, that's the way uh, Lincoln felt inwardly. So inwardly, he was quite uh, radical, quite leftist. However, he was in a state, Illinois, that's where he rose to prominence, competing for political office in, in a very conservative kind of environment. And it was so conservative that in 1853 there was passed the so-called Negro Exclusion Act, which prevented free Af African Americans from entering the state uh, beyond 10 days. And if they stayed beyond 10 days, then they were either thrown into jail or, or fined uh, $500, which back then was a tremendous amount of money. Anyway, and so there were, and particularly, particularly in central Illinois where uh, Lincoln lived and ran for office, there was a lot of conservative feeling. So he had to kind of uh, adapt a sort of centrist position, and he did adapt one. He compared himself to the famous tightrope walker of that era named Blondin. And Blondin was someone who, his, he was actually a French person, but he came over and assumed this nickname. And he crossed Niagara, Niagara Falls on a tightrope many times. He did it on stilts. He did it carrying a man on his back. He did it backward. He did it um, uh, on a uh, <laughs> balance, sometimes on a chair, or pushing a wheelbarrow. He was quite amazing. This is all without a net, uh, a net, of course. And uh, anyway, and, and, and Lincoln really compared himself to being on the tightrope right in the center, in the center. And a lot of cartoonists, if you go back there, I reproduce um, a lot of cartoons from political cartoons showing uh, Lincoln as, as Blondin, as Blondin pushing a wheelbarrow. And he told... Uh, People who got mad at him for not making it an explicitly anti-slavery war from the beginning, he said, look, if I were Blondin and I were crossing uh, Niagara with my wheelbarrow, my wheelbarrow contained the entire American future, all, the whole future of America in my wheelbarrow, would you tell me, lean farther left, lean farther right, do this, do that? No, no, you would let me you know, go across and do the best I could. And it was especially tricky during the Civil War because there were five states. They were called border states, uh, including Kentucky and Tennessee and Maryland and Missouri and uh, others, a, a total of five that um, held, slave, held people in slavery, and yet they were still tenuously devoted to the North. And he said, you know, if I say the wrong thing, if I do the wrong thing, we're going to lose Kentucky, and if we lose Kentucky, we're going to lose everything. We're going to lose. We're 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 just going to lose the war. We're going to lose everything. So he had to sort of remain Blondin. He had to remain in the center, despite his left-leaning um, instincts. And eventually, uh, when the war went well uh, for the North, finally after three and a half years, he did support uh, the Thirteenth Amendment which um, abolished slavery in America.
and then after peace was announced at Appomattox, where Lee surrendered to Grant, um, he was the first president who recommended the vote, the vote for African Americans. So eventually he got there, but he knew that before then, for much of the time, he had to be blonde and Ironically, one of the key figures of the left, Karl Marx, called Lincoln one of the rare men who succeeded in becoming great without ceasing to be good. So yeah. he was appreciated by people who <laughs> were, were, were not even Americans. Yeah, I know. I know. And uh, another socialist uh, named uh, Tolstoy, Leo Tolstoy, uh -huh. called him the, the only really great the only really great statesman in, in world history, you know, the, the, the greatest statesman in, in, in history. And I think both of them uh, kind of admired the fact that he managed to navigate um, such dangerous um, political and cultural uh, waters. Uh, if you can just imagine being president and 11 states have supposedly left left America and become another nation, and then you're conducting a war that in many, in many phases didn't go particularly well uh, for the North. So, and yet to retain your, to retain at least somewhat your composure and your control, um, and people like Marx and Tolstoy really, really admired that ability in him. You're Even though he was never, he was never uh, himself a Marxist or a socialist, but still, uh, you know, he, they, they admired that. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is David S. Reynolds, whose latest book is Abe, Abraham Lincoln in, uh, in his times. Uh, what was the political climate leading up to the election of 1860? Well, the political climate was very divided. One reason um, is that why there were four candidates. Yeah, there were four candidates. One was Lincoln. He was the Northern Republican candidate. Stephen Douglas was his Democratic opponent, and he tried to uh, unify the opposition, but he failed. He ran as a uh, uh, a. Uh, um, a, de a Democrat, but then there were uh, uh, Breckinridge, John Breckinridge, uh, ran as as a Southern Democrat. The head of this, there was a whole uh, bunch of Southern states that wanted to secede from the Union, and so he led those. Uh, Douglas was Douglas was slightly more moderate, and yet was still pro-slavery. And then there was John Bell, who was uh, a Union Party candidate. So you had four candidates. Wait, they, they, they were the former Whigs, mostly? Yeah, they were the former... The Constitutional ma Union Mainly Party. the former conservative Whigs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mainly the former... They were not uh, able to sympathize with the South or uh, with the secessionists. They basically didn't like um, Douglas because he was indifferent about the westward extension of slavery. And yet they considered Lincoln uh, a little too strong, strongly anti-slavery and maybe a little too given to civil war should, 
should, uh, you know, the tensions become truly severe. So they kind of gathered. They, they were the much more moderate and, and conservative uh, old Whigs, so to speak. Yeah. Before Lincoln was nominated by the Republican Party, who were the other Republicans being considered for the to be candidate? Well, some of the big ones were William Henry Seward, who was um, very admirable. Um, anti-slavery lawyer and another, uh, and also politician, and another, uh, again, admirable anti-slavery lawyer and politician, uh, Salmon Chase. Mm-hmm. And they, re- uh, and then on the, they, they, they really represented the kind of radical anti-slavery. Uh, they weren't quite abolitionists uh, like, um, let's say, William Lloyd Garrison or something, but they were political, political abolitionists. Uh, but they were considered too radical and maybe unelectable because of their radicalism. And on the other hand, you had... Um, well, they wound up in the it, government anyway. Yeah, they did. And um, that's part of what Doris Kearns Goodwin means when she talks about team of rivals. Hmm. Because um, both they and another candidate who was more moderate, uh, Bates, uh, Edward Bates, who was uh, more moderate, actually... Then Lincoln um, represented different uh, poll, polls or, uh, of, of the uh, anti-democratic party. Back then, the Democratic Party was conservative, and the Republicans were the liberals back then. But um, when Lincoln composed his cabinet, he did compose a kind of team of rivals, which is the title of Doris's book. And uh, a lot of these people really hadn't gotten along beforehand because of their differing views. The only thing they did agree on was the larger vision of stamping out slavery eventually and yet preserving the Union. So they agreed on that, but a lot of their personalities clashed, and a couple of them felt superior uh, to Lincoln himself. And when someone uh, asked Lincoln, are you really going to appoint Salmon Chase uh, as your Secretary of the Treasury? And Lincoln said, yes. And and he said, why do you ask? And the guy said, because uh, Salmon Chase is convinced that he's superior to you. And Lincoln said, oh, no, that that he's better than you, that he's better. And Lincoln said, oh, well, can you find me many more more people like that, please? In other words, he, (laughs) as opposed to someone who demands personal loyalty, he he demanded someone who was competent, who was excellent at their job, and also devoted to the vision. Because uh, Sam and Chase had been, been uh, very uh, uh, progressive in his views of, of enslaved people. He had defended them and everything. So he, uh, and, and Lincoln knew that. And even throughout the whole presidency, Sam and Chase actually tried to supplant uh, Lincoln because he ran for office in 1864, and Lincoln knew that he was scheming all this stuff. And yet, and ultimately, he did have to fire him. But uh, shortly after his uh, re-election in 1864, uh, he appointed him uh, you know, justice of the Supreme Court. So um, he, didn't, he was not someone who demanded personal loyalty or who held grudges against certain people. And he laughed off criticism. Uh, didn't his Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, once compare him to a baboon? 
Uh, yeah. How, how did Lincoln respond? Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. Uh, a lot of people called him an ape or a baboon. And when he heard that uh, Edwin Stanton called him, he said, oh, someone said, aren't you uh, insulted by that? And, and Lincoln said, insulted? No, no, I have to look into this. He says, uh, you know, I've, of coming from Stanton, that's a serious, uh, you know, uh, accusation. I think I'll, I'll I'll look into that. He said, "What troubles <laughs> he, he, me he most is that Stanton said it, and Stanton is usually right." Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He says Stanton is, and again. So he obviously had a great sense of humor. Yeah, he had a good sense of humor. Once, uh, when he was on the law circuit, and uh, they used to stay in these flea bag uh, inns and so forth along the way and infested with bed bugs and all this stuff and served lousy dinners. And at one of them, um, Lincoln said uh, to the, the waitress, he said, if this is tea, tea, will you kindly bring me, bring me some coffee? But if this is <laughs> coffee, will you get me some tea, please? <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And also he said, oh, uh, at one inn, he said, in the absence of dinner, I think I'll dive into this cabbage. You know, <laughs> yeah. it was, can, you know terrible. Can it stuff. be argued that one of his biggest mistakes was in choosing Andrew Johnson, a Democrat, to be his running mate? What was the what was the reaction uh, of other Republicans to that choice? Well, um, Back then, the Republic, the vice presidential candidate was chosen by convention, uh, by at at a convention. So he um, would have preferred somebody else. But wow. yeah, but um, uh, he wasn't totally opposed to Johnson at first because Johnson had been governor of Tennessee, and he had done his best to keep that state within the union, even though toward the end it did bleed off into the Confederacy, but he was a staunch uh, Union person, even though he was a thoroughgoing racist. And as we learned when he became president, that's a whole other book. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, First impeachment. Uh, yeah. Hadn't John Wilkes Booth and his small band of contributors also plotted to murder Johnson and also the Secretary of State, William H. Seward? What happened? Yeah, well, what happened was that uh, uh, there was a, a band of uh, about five or six conspirators, and uh, John Wilkes Booth was the head of this band. Uh, John Wilkes Booth was almost the Brad Pitt of his I mean, he was a very handsome ladies' man, an actor, very famous actor, uh, kind of a, a, a you know, a heartthrob, heartthrob, that kind of thing. But he was a very ardent white supremacist from Maryland, and he just hated Lincoln. And when, particularly when Lincoln was reelected, he said, oh boy, you know, we really have to get rid of this guy. And then when he heard Lincoln um, recommend the vote for African-Americans, he, he was in the audience and he said, okay, I'm going to put him through now. You know, he'd been sort of plotting, but now he said, now, now, now I'm going to do it. And so he got his fellow conspirators together and he said, okay, you, at a certain time, uh, you're going to kill uh, Vice President Johnson, who will be staying in the Kirkwood Hotel here in Washington. 
and you, the other, another conspirator, you're going to go kill um, Seward, Secretary of State Seward, uh, in his home, uh, uh, which was not too far from the White House. And uh, I'll be in the theater killing Lincoln. So um, now, uh, of course, Booth succeeded. He was captured 12 days later after fleeing. But the other two, um, uh, the guy that was supposed to kill J uh, Lincoln, uh, Johnson, chickened out. Uh, it was too bad that he chickened <laughs> Too bad that he chickened out. But he uh, got drunk in the bar, and then he went and threw his gun into the gutter and everything. He got drunk in the hotel uh, bar and then left. The other guy broke into Seward's home pretending to be a doctor because um, Seward was in bed uh, upstairs recovering from a carriage accident. And he managed the, the assassin, would-be assassin, got upstairs and got into Seward's uh, bedroom and actually started stabbing Seward, but he stabbed him in the neck, and Seward had this iron brace from his carriage accident. And actually the, the brace saved, deflected the, <laughs> deflected the, uh, the, knife, the knife. And by that time, uh, Frederick Seward, the son, came in and kind of managed to get the guy out of the house, and a servant helped him, but he was stabbing those people all the way down the stairs, so they got wounded, but he made it out of the house. But uh, So only Lincoln was the one who was, was actually uh, killed that evening. And, yeah. and Seward later negotiated the purchase of Alaska. Uh, following yeah. the 1860 election, the Democrats and Republicans became the only parties, pretty much a, a largely two-party system for most of the rest of our history. That's right. That's right. It kind of consolidated the parties. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it was much of it was a quite sad history, you know, as, as you know, because um, basically, even though we had the 13th and 14th and 15th Amendment, which gave citizenship rights, rights to African-American males, um, it would take women uh, quite a bit longer to earn the vote. But uh, we still had uh, um, a real reaction, of course, in the South. The collapse of Reconstruction and the rise of Jim Crow, legalized segregation and lynching and all of that. But, uh, yeah. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Raised up in Kentucky in a cabin cold and bare. Side, he got his learning there, earned his keep by splitting logs. He grew so lean and strong, he could fight against the bully or could right a mighty wrong. And we're back from the break. Before I return to my conversation with David S. Reynolds, I need to take just a minute to ask you to consider contributing to this station to help us get back on our feet after this pandemic has made our financial situation quite difficult. And that's why we're asking everyone who tunes into Leonard Lopate at Large and is financially able to come through for us right now by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 516-620-3602 to help keep these one-hour deep dives coming to you live on WBAI weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. And one great way 
to support the station without having to lay out a lot of money at any one time is to become a BAI buddy. There are listeners who contribute $10 or more each month to keep the station running and, and to show their support for what we do on this show. And, and I'm very pleased to announce that anyone who signs up today to become a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large by calling 516-620-3602 or by going online to give2wbai.org will receive a free copy of David S. Reynolds' book, Abe, Abraham Lincoln in His Times, as our way of saying thanks for being among the many listeners who support this show. In fact, listeners are our only source of support because WBAI doesn't take grant money or corporate sponsorships of any kind. We don't run ads. Whatever level you feel comfortable contributing at, the important thing is that you step up right now to give us that support so we can continue to bring you these long-form interviews on topics that we hope will be of interest to you. Why not make that call now? 516-620-3602 or go to our website, give2wbai.org, and please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And from all of us at this show and for this station, thank you so much. And we return now to my guest, David S. Reynolds, whose latest book, uh, this is your 17th? It's my 16th, yeah. So it's appropriate that your 16th is about our 16th president. <laughs> hey. Yeah. Abraham Lincoln in his times. Uh, it is published by Penguin Press, and uh, I, let's let's move on to uh, what happens after he becomes <laughs> after he becomes president. Although uh, I, I'm curious about uh, Lincoln's ideas of, of uh, American democracy. He particularly admired the language of the Declaration of Independence, which he called the most powerful moral law America had produced because it included the phrase, all men are created equal. Yeah. Um, Lincoln was primarily responsible for ushering the idea of human equality to the very center of American experience. And he did that particularly in the Gettysburg Address, um, where he talks about, you know, four score and seven years ago. Uh, on this continent was founded, uh, you know, a nation uh, consecrated to the ideal uh, that all men are created equal. We would say all men and, and women, of course, all human beings. And in, in those days, it was only men. Yeah, yeah in those days, it was genetic. Yeah, right. It was, it was only men. Um, and uh, other people were saying, well, obviously certain races are not equal to white races. Stephen Douglas said there's no way that you can, uh, you know, call the African-American, um, you know, the equal of a white person and so forth. And that the, found, that the founders, some of them held people in slavery and that the Constitution was partly a, a pro-slavery document. But Lincoln devoted much of his career to showing that the, the underlying spirit of the Constitution uh, was anti-slavery with due process and so forth. And it never mentions the word slavery, and that even the founders who held people in slavery themselves envisaged the ultimate, like Thomas Jefferson, who wrote, uh, he owned over 600 slaves, in, in, enslaved people. 
in his lifetime. But he was the one who actually uh, wrote uh, the uh, Declaration of Independence and All Men Are Created Equal. So uh, Lincoln knew that this was an ideal that the founders had valued, had treasured, and had looked forward to, even though in practice, because of the customs of their era, they didn't quite fulfill them. And so he was determined to bring this idea of human equality to the fore. Uh, you know, to to uh, public consciousness. And he said of the Constitution, quote, don't interfere with anything in the Constitution. That must be maintained, for it is the only safeguard of our liberties. And not to Democrats alone do I make this appeal, but to all who love these great and true principles. He believed in an anti-slavery constitutionalism that would prohibit the, the, uh, the spread of slavery into the new American territories. Uh, yeah, this he is something, that and that's something he went that went all the way back to when he was in uh, a congressman. Yeah, uh, he he really uh, believed that uh, the federal gov federal government could not interfere with um, slavery where uh, it already existed, where where it existed in the states. However, in the vast western territory. They were not claimed by any states. Most of this territory was taken over during the Mexican War of the 1840s. Uh, in that territory, um, that was federal jurisdiction. And um, the founders had uh, said that uh, through the uh, Northwest Ordinance of uh, 1787, uh, the founders, uh, even the, pro even the slave slaveholding ones, had forbade the extension of slavery there. And there have been other anti-slavery regulations, and, and Lincoln was very, very firm, as were his fellow Republicans, about uh, observing the Constitution by allowing slavery to remain where it was already, but not to allow its spread. Because what was going to happen is, if it started spreading, why, you'd have so many more slave states, and uh, and they would have representation in Congress. They would completely control the government. And the pro-slavery Southerners were thinking at that time of taking over Cuba, for sure, hmm. and possibly Mexico and other parts of Latin America. So uh, you could have had many, many, many more uh, slave uh, states. Uh, so uh, uh, Lincoln and the Republicans wanted to prevent the spread of slavery. Now. Uh, President Trump has compared himself to Lincoln a, a number of times. I want to play a little clip of something he said during the second presidential debate. Nobody has done more for the black community than Donald Trump. And if you look, with the exception of Abraham Lincoln, possible exception, but the exception of Abraham Lincoln, nobody has done what I've done. What was your reaction when you heard him say that? He's, he has said it a number of other times as well. Yeah, well, um, I almost felt like uh, throw, throwing up at that point. Um, you know, uh, there's absolutely no way um, that uh, Trump is in the same universe in terms of, of doing things for the African-American community. Um, they, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's frankly a complete and utter lie. Um, he, uh, 
Abraham Lincoln was quite close to African Americans in Springfield. He lived in a community where there were 21 free uh, African Americans who lived around him. He was quite close uh, to several of them. They they loved him. He loved them. Um, he tried to help them out as much as he could. He offered one of them, his barber, who was uh, William Florville, free legal. Sir, he was a lawyer. Free legal services. Uh, defended him in court and on and on. And then when he was in the White House, um, Frederick Douglass, who was African American leader, visited him. And at first, Douglass had been a little suspicious because. Lincoln at first did not make it an anti-slavery war, as I explained earlier, because of certain, you know, trying to keep the border states in the Union. But then when Douglas finally meets uh, Lincoln in 1863 in the middle of the war, um, he's really impressed by Lincoln's progressive attitude. And his, uh, uh, Douglas says, uh, actually, uh, <laughs> President Lincoln was the least prejudiced person I've ever met in person. And um, then when Douglas uh, visited him the next year, um, Lincoln wanted to appoint him uh, to a military position in which um, he would go down and uh, inform enslaved people that the Emancipation Proclamation had been passed six months earlier or had been issued six months earlier, and a lot of them didn't even know about it. And And Douglas would have loved to have done that. But then it was ob- it was canceled because uh, the military success was so great in the fall of '64 that Douglas didn't have to do it. But uh, and then Sojourner Truth, um, this aged feminist African American, visited him, and again was was just stunned by his affection, his respect more than affection, respect for her. He called her Auntie Truth, Auntie Truth, and then. Um, uh, one of the most radical people, well, well beyond Black Lives Matter or anything, Martin Delaney, who was like an African nationalist, uh, came to the White House and met him. And he, uh, Lincoln appointed him to be the highest um, officer than any African American had yet um, uh, in, uh, been appointed to. And he was about to go off to battle. Uh, uh, and he, uh, but then the war ended, actually. But when Martin Delaney learned that Lincoln had been shot, had been killed. He cried like a baby for about two hours. He 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 just and and he wanted to raise to do a, a Lincoln monument, and uh, very tellingly, the monument was going to be simply an African American woman who's kneeling but trying to stand up, and Lincoln isn't even in the monument, but she's crying four million tears. And the, uh, each tier was going to be paid for by a penny from the four million enslaved people that uh, Lincoln had, uh, had emancipated. Uh, and, I, you know, you could tell many, many other stories. I mean, he, he really won, won the hearts. You know, Donald Trump has expressed a good number of racist uh, uh, things. Um, and, uh, you know, I need not recount them. He's done certain things economically uh, that uh, have had kind of mixed effects on on the African-American community. But um, there's a good reason why um, the overwhelming percentage of African-Americans do not support him. They they support Biden because, uh, you know, he cannot (laughs) cannot, uh, claim to be anywhere on the map 
with Abraham Lincoln uh, in terms of uh, race. Beyond uh, his uh, record involving African Americans, haven't protesters questioned Lincoln's progressive record, citing his order to execute 38 members of the Sioux tribe, the largest mass execution in American history? Yeah, but that has to be taken into context. Uh, the Sioux in Minnesota were like like many, many Native Americans uh, in that era, were defrauded, they were cheated by white settlers and by agents and everything, and uh, they were economically disadvantaged. So they became angry, the Sioux did, and they rose up and um, they killed um, a good number of white people. Uh, who were white settlers who were living uh, in that area. And there was a cry for justice. And so well over 300 of them were designated to hang, to be hanged. But Lincoln, um, now his grandfather had been killed by a Native American, uh, and he grew up in Kentucky, in, uh, in Kentucky, in a region that was... Uh, his family had been quite close to Daniel Boone and so forth, who was an Indian hunter and so forth. He might have initially inherited some of that feeling, but during the Black Hawk War, he had actually prevented the execution of a Native American who came into camp. And with the Sioux, he, he had been a lawyer, and even though he was president, he took the time to sort through uh, the 330 cases uh, carefully, and he decided that, okay, only uh, verifiably can 38 be designated here. And so he actually, he actually saved the life of, uh, the lives of uh, about 264 uh, Native Americans. And that, a lot of, uh, that's, that's always left out um, of, of the accounting of it. Again, it, uh, obviously it was a tragic thing, and it, it was, uh, but his agents, the agents who uh, worked under him, he wasn't particularly good, I think, about cho choosing the, the, the agents for the um, Native Americans, and, and some of them were quite racist. And so when uh, some Native American chiefs uh, visited uh, the White House, and he talked with them and so forth, and then uh, they greeted him. and. But then two of them were slaughtered by these kind of racist a agents when they returned to the West. So it was a very kind of ugly situation. Uh, but Lincoln said, you know, I, I really do want to reform the Native American situation someday. But, uh, yeah, a, a lot of people leave out the fact that uh, of the, the story of that execution. I'm speaking on today's Leonard Lopate at large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM with David S. Reynolds, whose latest book is Abe, Abraham Lincoln in His Times, published by Penguin Press. Higher law was cited by Northern radicals to justify violent acts against slavery. Uh, he rejected the concept of higher law, at least in the early cases. What was his take on, on John Brown and other people who uh, had similar rebellions? Well, John Brown, about whom I wrote another a different book, John yeah. Brown, Abolitionist, um, was a religiously inspired man who um, felt that 
God had chosen him to wipe out slavery, and so single-handedly, with 19 followers, he invaded the South and tried to uh, create a slave rebellion that he hoped would cause the toppling of slavery, but then he was captured and hanged by, by Southerners, and he became a martyr in the North and became almost sanctified compared to, to Jesus Christ and so forth in the, in the North, venerated. But uh, Lincoln said John Brown was, was generous, we generous-hearted. We agree with him in his view of slavery, but what he did was lawless. It was against the law, and John Brown really put into action the higher law. Uh, this was, uh, he went beyond the Constitution and beyond local laws, and Lincoln said, we just can't do it, because Lincoln knew that the higher law could be pointed in, in any direction. Mm -hmm. uh, and it shows you that sometimes if you apply the higher law, like today, there have been several uh, murder, murderers of abortion doctors, abortion doctors, who take the example of John Brown. They say, we're, we're just following in the footsteps of John Brown. Uh, it shows you that sometimes the higher law can be misapplied, and in... Lincoln's day, the Southerners had their own higher law. They said that slavery was a divine institution. It was practiced in the Bible. Uh, it was uh, a wonderful thing to bring uh, Africans from their native land and expose them to Western civilization and to give them cabins in which to live and, and food and so forth. So, so they had their own higher law. And Lincoln saw that uh, the higher law could be dangerous because it could, could really be a slippery, slippery slope down which one could tumble and end up in a very bad place. We have just a, a minute or two left, but I want to address something else. Hadn't corruption been a major concern during the two preceding administrations, Franklin Pierce's and James Buchanan's? Is that what led Lincoln to fight fraud and corruption with legislation like the False Claims Act, also known as the Lincoln Law? Yeah, there have been a lot of uh, corruption. The Buchanan administration in particular was, was very, very corrupt, uh, considered one of the most corrupt um, administrations in, in history, full of bribery and graft and everything. And Lincoln was partly elected on the idea that he was fundamentally honest. Uh, he was not corrupt, and he did what uh, he could to uh, wipe out corruption. Of course, early on there was a certain corruption on, in his administration, not due to his fault, but due to the fact that the North suddenly needed so many supplies so quickly that contractors, uh, these private contractors, were selling um, goods at, at very, very high, high prices to the government. Finally, the government took over um, the production of, of uniforms and, and supplies and everything. So that was pretty much cleaned up under Stanton. And yeah, the False Claims Act, which is known as the whistleblower law, mm. uh, allowed uh, either government official, officials or even private individuals who were aware of some kind of corruption to uh, report it without being exposed themselves. So uh, to this day, it's called the Lincoln Law, the Lincoln Law. So that was one of the legacies of uh, Lincoln's uh, administration.
David S. Reynolds is the author or editor of 16 books, including Walt Whitman's America Cultural Biography. He is the winner of the Bancroft Prize and the Ambassador Book Award. And his latest, his 16th, is Abe, Abraham Lincoln in His Times, published by Penguin Press. It's been such a great pleasure talking with you today. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Leonard. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, I'm hoping your listeners will reach out and uh, <laughs> take your offer, your very kind offer. Uh, of, of your book, which we will get That's to in just book. a moment. Uh, that does bring us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to segment producer Kate Guan Allison for preparing today's interview. If you're new to our show and would like to hear more, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes and anywhere else that podcasts are available. And you can also find links to our past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to comment on any of our shows or if you just want to say hello, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Uh, before I sign off uh, today, I, I'd like to take just a few moments uh, again to ask for your support for this station because you know that we're going through a rough time. In fact, all public media are going through a rough time right now because of the pandemic. Uh, support is down economically because people are going through a rough time. But if you can afford to, we hope that, and if you care about Leonard Lopez at Lodge and all the other great programs on WBAI, uh, we need your help to keep it all going. And we hope that you'll step up right now and make a contribution at whatever level you're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 516-620-3602 right now to keep the unique in-depth content we bring you on this show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. And if you do sign up right now, to become a BAI buddy in the name of the show, we will send you a free copy, uh, something that uh, uh, Professor Reynolds just mentioned, a free copy of the book that we've been discussing, David S. Reynolds, Abe, Abraham Lincoln in His Times. Um, so we really hope that you'll call us right now at 516-620-3602 or go to give to WBAI.org and make that pledge to right now. Uh, and we hope you'll tune in tomorrow when Professor of Molecular Biology and Genetics at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, Sean B. Carroll, will discuss his latest book called A Series of Fortunate Events, Chance and the Making of the Planet, Life and You. Hope to see you then.